Here, I got a, I got a battery. I'll let you put it in for me. <clears throat> Sorry about that, folks. Okay, while he's doing that, let's take a look at Mark 8 this morning. Understanding and application of spiritual truth based upon God's word is paramount to Christian living. And our spiritual perception is based upon uh, hearing and seeing as much as our sensual perception is. In order to understand God's truth, we've got to be able to hear it. And uh, see it and ask God to explain it to us. And so this morning you're hearing the word of God. You're hearing the truth. And our job is to do our best to understand what God is telling us. And then we respond to it. We apply it to our lives. And if we fail to understand and apply the word of God, then we are among those who are dull of hearing And we really disable our spiritual perception or seeing. Now, in our study of Mark, have you noticed that Christ's disciples have a problem with this? Uh, Their spiritual perception is off. They saw his works, his miracles, his healing, his casting out of demons. They heard his teaching. They were amazed by it. But Mark, more than any other gospel author, highlights their spiritual obtuseness. Our passage this morning is one of the strongest revelations of this. But Jesus is not going to leave them in that place where they don't understand, where they remain dull. He's taking them on a journey to open their minds to the truth of who he is. Now, you can see that progression in the diagram on the back of your bulletin this morning. And as you look at that, you're going to see two columns of uh, Bible verses from chapter 6 and then chapter 8. And the explanation in between shows you the parallel. And he's bringing them to the place where they're going to make a profession of faith in him. And it appears that healing the deaf and blind men were visual symbols of what Jesus must do spiritually for his disciples. And as he opened the ears of the blind man so he could hear the words of Jesus, as he opened the eyes, uh, excuse me, the ears of the the man who, who couldn't hear and opens his hearing, and he opens the eyes of the blind man so he could see the works of Jesus, so he has to open our ears, our eyes, those of the disciples, to understand what he's saying for, their, for them to know he was the Messiah. But even as the disciples come to that realization later on in this chapter, they still need a lot of teaching and guidance and drawing to the proper perception, which they really won't have until after the resurrection. And that's what this next section of uh, Mark's gospel is all about, helping them to perceive the truth of who Jesus is. Now, in our passage today, we see three different aspects of hearing and seeing the person of Christ. First of all, the feeding of the 4,000, we see that there are people who have not heard or have not heard fully the gospel, and they need to be reached. 
Jesus is kind of giving a foreshadowing of what will happen in the future. Then we see a group of people who have heard Jesus, who have seen his works, but they refuse to respond to it. They refuse to believe in it. This is the, the Pharisees and others like them in the religions of the day. And finally, we see that there are people like the disciples who also see, they hear, they don't disbelieve, but they just come up short of grasping the fullness of the truth as to who Jesus is. Now today, we have no excuse to be in any one of these groups, not really. We should be among those who fully confess Christ, knowing who he is, what he's done for us, and seek to understand and obey all that we hear, all that we see from his word. So let's ask God's blessing on it today. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that we can meet together, we can look into your word, we can perceive its truth and apply it to our lives. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the whole word of God today, not just a portion of it, not just what the disciples heard when Jesus was on this earth, but we have everything, the full revelation. So, Lord, help us to be thankful for that, but, Lord, help us not to put it in a, uh, on a shelf and forget about it every day. Help us, Lord, to apply its truths to the things that we face each day, the decisions we need to make, uh, the things we need to do, the conflicts we may come in uh, into, and help us to apply your word to all these things. So, Lord, help us to truly see and hear, believe, and apply your word today. Bless us as we continue, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, first of all, let's take a look at this first group. And we see here that there are those who are willing uh, to hear and see, but they, they need to be reached. And we find this uh, beginning really back in chapter 7. You remember that Jesus now has gone out of Judea, out of uh, the region of Jewish people, into the broader world of Gentiles. He went there, first of all, probably to rest, recuperate, teach his disciples. But when he was in, when he was in uh, Phoenicia, uh, a woman came to him, a Syrophoenician woman, and she asked him to cast out a demon from her daughter. Now, she had not heard much about Jesus. She had never seen him. But when he comes, he sees, she sees him, she hears him, she has a discourse with him. Jesus sees faith in her and answers her request. From there, Jesus moves a little bit farther north. He goes up to the region of Sidon. Then he makes his way over probably a couple, three or four months to the region of Decapolis on the other side of the Jordan River, uh, the, the region of 10 cities, which was highly populated with Gentile people. Well, when he crosses the sea and he gets there, the people come to him and they bring to him a man who is deaf. Jesus uh, heals that man And when they see what he has done, they declare in the last verse of chapter 7, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute mute to speak. So they see Jesus. They know enough about him that he is a healer. They believe he can heal this man, but they have not really heard the fullness of truth yet. They need to be reached with it. Now that leads us then into chapter 8 and the feeding of the 4,000. Now it says in those days, that connects us with the days that he was outside of uh, Galilee. 
He's in another part of the world that is pretty much non-Jewish. Now, there would have been some Jews in Decapolis across the river. That's where uh, Manasseh and Gad uh, uh, had their portion back in the Old Testament days. So there would have been some Jews there, but largely Gentile population. And this is the same group of people that Jesus now has gone to. They've come uh, with this man who needed to be healed. If we go to Matthew's account, we find that he was doing other things as well. He was healing uh, people of all kinds of diseases, the lame, the infirm, the blind, and the mute. So he had a healing ministry while he was there. Now, we are not informed of any preaching that he did, but uh, it's likely that he must have done some teaching during that time. That was the purpose of doing the miracles, to draw people's attention to himself so they would listen to what he had to say. He could have easily spent that whole time uh, healing folks, but it seems to me he also would have been kind of presenting some of the same things he was presenting to the people uh, back home because there would have been at least some Jews there. Now, the time arrives uh, in the story here for Jesus to move on. But the people have been with him at least three days. Any supplies they may have had would have been used up. Uh, the disciples mentioned they're in a wilderness area. So this is not the same time as the feeding of the 5,000 where they could have gone into the villages and maybe gotten some bread. Here there's not even that opportunity. <clears throat> and so um, uh, Jesus is having compassion on them. He wants to take care of this need. He's afraid if they go home without uh, being fed that some of them will faint on the way. Uh, there were probably some women and children with them. And so he wants to meet that need. And uh, uh, we, we see this mentioned here in verse 2. I have compassion on the multitude because they have no, now continue with me these three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So Jesus, again, is concerned about the people that he ministers to. And then we come to verse 4. And this may seem a little puzzling to us. His disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, um, does that seem strange to you? <clears throat> Especially when you think back a few chapters. Wait a minute, Jesus already fed 5,000 people with less than what they're going to have to feed these people with. So what this is presenting to us is again, uh, the idea that disciples just don't get it. That that uh, miracle may have occurred a few months earlier, but it seems to me you would have remembered it. It seems to me you would have learned something from it. So what it's teaching us or showing us is that still at this point, there's a lack of spiritual perception, a lack of spiritual sight in the hearts of the disciples as to the person of the Lord Jesus. And as this uh, unfolds, I'm just kind of wondering was Jesus thinking, oh, here we go again. And so he goes through the same scenario as before. Okay, go out and find out how many loaves we have. See what we have to, to start with to feed these folks. And uh, uh, he asks them how many loaves. They respond, we have seven. Now, if they were thinking about it last time, they had more people, but they had less loaves. They had five loaves back then. 
But it's like this would escape their whole mind. So Jesus commands them to all sit down like in the previous uh, uh, um, uh, miracle scenario. They all sit down. They all are filled. They're filled to the full. And they have seven baskets full of fragments left over. This is a different word, incidentally, for baskets than the uh, other occasion. This is a large basket. So they have all these, uh, all this leftover food starting from something very small and having more left than what you start with. So Jesus does the whole miracle again as he meets the needs of the people that are there. So what does this teach us? Well, first of all, we have another allusion here to the compassion and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He displays his concern over the physical needs of his people. He has healed these people of all kinds of ailments and diseases. He's concerned that uh, if they go home without having some uh, physical uh, uh, food, that, that some of them are going to faint on the way, they're going to get sick, maybe not even make it. So he's dealing with those physical needs. But we also know that his main business is not just to heal people and uh, make them healthy and cast out demons. His main business is the healing of the human soul. His his desire is that people believe in him uh, and who he is and see, see his works, hear his teaching, and come to him as their savior, this, of course, being in the future. We also see here another opportunity for the disciples to learn something and to increase their understanding that Jesus isn't just a man. He's doing things that a man cannot do. He's doing things that are great and wonderful. They're, they're, they're seeing this. They're amazed by it. But they're not putting two and two together and saying, this has to be the Messiah. Now, they're going to come to that point, but they're not there yet. And then finally... As Jesus feeds this large multitude, 4,000 men plus women and children, that this is a foreshadowing of the inclusion of Gentile nations in the gospel. Most of these people were were non-Jews. And uh, uh, Jesus, the bread of life, came to the Jews and fed the 5,000, but now he's crossing the sea and he's feeding 4,000 who are non-Jews. Now, they haven't gotten the gospel yet. Nobody's really fully gotten the full gospel until after his resurrection. But he's showing he has a concern for those people as well. That's why he went into this larger non-Jew region. And these people uh, have come to him They have seen the works he's done. They have heard probably some of his teaching. And uh, they may not know a whole lot about him, but they will in the future. And so this is pointing out the truth that they need the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And they're going to receive it later on, even in greater numbers than the Jews will. Now, as Jesus moves on from this region, we come into contact with another group that we're familiar with. And we see this beginning in verse, uh, well, verse 10. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples. He came to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, we don't exactly know where that is. We can't find any archaeological evidence 
<clears throat> but most scholars believe it's back on the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, south of Capernaum, and there's a pretty large region there where there would be villages and towns that Jesus could go to. And so as he goes there, uh, he is confronted by another group of Pharisees. These are probably local Pharisees. It doesn't say they came from Jerusalem. But the Pharisees were all around in these villages. They were uh, involved in the synagogues. And these uh, Pharisees come out. And here we find that there are those who hear and see, but they refuse to believe. Okay, so Jesus uh, comes there, verse 11. And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. Now, that word dispute means to um, argue, to question, to go back and forth. And um, uh, we've, we've seen this group before. We know who they are. Matthew informs us that they, um, there were also Sadducees that were with them. We've met scribes who are usually grouped together with Pharisees. And there are also the, the Herodians that we have met with, and Jesus mentions Herod a little bit later. So we have these different groups coming together. Now, scribes and Pharisees didn't agree with Sadducees, and none of them agreed with Herodians. But as we said last time, uh, one of the sayings we have today, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so all these people, our enemies really, come together when it comes to Jesus, because this is somebody we need to get rid of. Okay, so uh, the scribes uh, and the experts, of the experts of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, they're gathered together and they're trying to coax Jesus into giving them a sign. Now they have, they have uh, seen Jesus in operation. They have seen his miracles. They've seen him cast out demons. They've heard his words in the synagogues as he preached. And they've had as much exposure, not probably not quite as much as the disciples, but they've had a good bit of ex exposure. And these are men who are versed in Scripture. They knew the Old Testament upside down and backwards. So they should have been able to put two and two together better than the disciples did. But no, they would not do that. Uh, they even accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And that's just ridiculous. Satan's not in the business of helping people and healing them and casting out his own evil spirits. That doesn't make any sense. But they don't want to believe that Jesus is from God. Uh, they couldn't refute his teaching whenever they came to him and, and argue with him about things. They could never trip him up with their many ploys, such as this one on this occasion. Now, let's see why they want to come and why they're disputing with him. Well, they're supposedly seeking from him a sign from heaven, and they're testing him. That word can also mean tempting, and that's pretty much what they're doing. They're tempting him to give them some kind of cataclysmic sign that would prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that he's from heaven and he's who he says he is and all that. But what this really does is prove the insincerity and unbelief that they had. If his miracles and his healings and his casting out of demons were not enough to believe in him, why would another sign make any difference? 
These were proof enough that Jesus was sent from God, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. Now, their supposed purpose in this wasn't really to believe in Jesus, but to test him, to try him, to tempt him, to see where his authority really came from. They didn't believe he was going to produce any kind of a sign because they didn't believe in him in the first place. And they refused to accept that he was sent from God because of that unbelief. And they thought that if he refused to perform a sign, that would discredit him in the eyes of the people, which is what they were out for, and it would be an admission of his inability. And they were trying to set a trap for Jesus. They thought they had it uh, made here. But again, what if Jesus did give an indisputable sign of who he was? That would mean you wouldn't have to have faith, wouldn't it? Because the Bible says faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we don't base our relationship on really what we see. We base it on faith. We've got to put the sight and faith together. This is something they did not want to do. So these men had seen enough to elicit their faith without another sign, and one more sign was not going to change their lack of faith. So how does Jesus respond to them in this situation? Well, the first thing we're told in verse 12 is he sighed deeply in his spirit. Have you ever done that? Sometimes people are so obtuse so unwilling to receive a verb, a valid point, so opposed to what you're trying to show them that all you can do inside is just go, like giving up on them. Well, one commentary said, it describes Jesus' grief and disappointment when faced with unbelief of those who, by, because of their spiritual privileges, the Pharisees described the Sadducees, ought to have been more responsive. But they weren't. These were people who should have been most able to see and hear who Jesus was because of their familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, but they refused to believe it. And folks, they refuse to believe it today. Jews today do not believe Jesus is their Messiah. So they're in need of salvation just as much as anybody else's today. Now, what does Jesus then say to them? Well, he asks a question. Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Matthew adds, except the sign of Jonah. We all know what that means. So Jesus says, no, there's not going to be any sign. There's really no need for a sign. And he mentions this generation to whom he is ministering. That alludes to those who will not believe, even though they have all this evidence to do so that should elicit their faith. It's not going to be long before the multitudes who were following Jesus in um, um the region of Judea and Galilee, will be crying out for his crucifixion. 
So there were a lot of people there who were seeing, they were hearing, but they were like the Pharisees. They weren't really believing. They weren't connecting the dots. And they'll later cry out for his death. No matter the truth presented to them, they will not believe. And we as God's people today need to understand there are a lot of people, there are millions of people that are in that kind of condition. They're in some kind of a uh, religion or a belief system that denies who the Lord Jesus is. They don't want to believe it. No matter what you present to them, they want to just do their own thing and go their own way. They need to be saved, but they're, they're refusing the truth as presented to them about what salvation is. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and we need to discern in our own hearts to make sure that we're believing what God has revealed to us in his word. Not from a religious group, not from a inspiring preacher or teacher, not from the latest bestseller on the bookshelf, <clears throat> but God's word. <clears throat> All right, now the final thing Jesus does in regard to this group of people is re- <clears throat> really the most severe. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Jack, would you get me a glass of water, please? <clears throat> it says in verse 13, and... He left them. And what's interesting is that as Mark's gospel proceeds, we're only going to see a couple of occasions where Jesus deals with this group again. He's going to be dealing with his disciples. He's going to be teaching them. But he's not going to have a whole lot to do with these uh, unbelieving, opposing groups. And that's the worst place that you can be left by the Lord Jesus, to be left in your darkness, to be left in your unbelief. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. And it won't be the fall of Jesus on that day when those who refuse to believe are left in outer darkness and suffer the consequences of their sin. All right, that leaves us then with the last group, which are the disciples themselves. In verses uh, 14 to 21 here. And again, we see pointed out here their lack of understanding, their lack of perception, and Jesus rebukes them about that. And this is uh, surrounding a warning that he gives them about leaven. So we're coming back to this whole theme of bread. Okay, the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples uh, don't, think they have enough bread. Jesus talks about leaven, so we're talking about this bread again. <clears throat> okay, verse 13, he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them with, uh, with them in the, <clears throat> excuse me, then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. <clears throat> and we're thinking, Okay, duh. You missed it again. <clears throat> now, um, 
they left that region. They left, it seems like they left quickly. Maybe they didn't have enough supplies. Uh, There wasn't anything in the boat. They hadn't gone to get anything. So when they uh, figure things out, they've only got one loaf of bread. There's 13 of them. Again, the idea, there's not enough. There's not enough. And they're talking about it. They're, They're disputing about it. And while they're doing this, Jesus is trying to teach them something. He's giving them a warning to beware leaven. Leaven has to do with bread rising. So the same theme is going on here. Now, um, here's another thing to think about. And obviously the disciples weren't thinking about it. Uh, They had one loaf of bread. They just saw Jesus take uh, seven loaves and feed 4,000 people. If they were thinking back, and and the Lord will remind remind them of this, they're thinking back to the 5,000. They were fed with just five loaves. Okay, we've got 13 people, one loaf, we've got it made. That's how they should have been thinking, but they didn't. They didn't miss it. <clears throat> they're, they're just not thinking along the lines Jesus wants them to. So he warns them about this leaven of uh, the Pharisees in Herod. Now, you know and I know, leaven or yeast is something that permeates a loaf of bread and causes it to rise. And it's used in the Bible, usually in a negative sense, as a figure of the permeating effect and power of evil. And so it only takes a small amount of yeast to affect the whole loaf. It only takes a small amount of unbelief to affect other people with it. So in asking for a sign, the Pharisees were trying to discredit Jesus. They were showing their unbelief. And Jesus is saying, beware of this leaven of unbelief because it affects all kinds of people. A small uh, element of it can ruin uh, many people. He mentions Herod as well. Uh, He will meet up with Herod uh, during his trial, and Herod will ask for a sign. Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Uh, But again, Jesus wouldn't even speak one word to Herod. Uh, although he asked for a sign. But the disciples don't get it. They don't grasp it. They think he's talking about physical bread in some way, and they miss the point once again. So Jesus goes on, verse 17, to rebuke their lack of uh, perception. And he accosts them with these rhetorical questions. He doesn't expect them to answer them, but he's showing them that they're still dull of hearing, that their minds need to be open. He says, why do you reason that you have no bread? That's not the point here. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? So it's their perception, their understanding. They're thinking too literally, I guess we could say. Is your heart still hardened? In other words, you you haven't opened your heart up to the spiritual uh, aspects of everything I've been doing and teaching here. Then having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And that is the reason Jesus began speaking in parables to people. Because they weren't believing, they weren't hearing, they weren't seeing, and so he spoke to them in a way that you can't really understand it unless you really come to him and you're seeking it out. And they weren't doing that at this time. And then he asked them, don't you remember? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was within probably four months. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of raiment did you take up? Well, they remember that. Well, yeah, 12. 
And then the 4,000, uh, we took up uh, seven. So they saw it, they understood it in a physical way, but they were missing it spiritually speaking. And then the clincher, how is it you still don't understand? You still don't get it. Well, what was it they were supposed to understand? Putting all this together. Everything they saw, everything they heard from Jesus, they should have understood that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was more than a human being. And if he's capable of doing all the things he was doing, uh, why would they be worried or why should they be worried over a single loaf of bread when they know he can supply lots more? So their eyes and their ears still have not quite opened to the truth of his identity, and that's what's frustrating the Lord Jesus. Now they'll get to that, but they need to see all these things in a progression up to that point. Well, let's draw some applications this morning as we close. For most of us here this morning, our eyes have been opened to the truth of God's word. We understand who Jesus is. We believe him. We've trusted him as our Savior and Lord. So that rules out being in the party of unbelief like the Pharisees and those groups of people. <clears throat> but there might be somebody here today who has not yet made a profession of faith, and you need to do that. Don't be left for all of eternity in your unbelief. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're reminded that there are many in the world who either have no knowledge of Christ or they have insufficient or incorrect understanding of who he is. The gospel had not yet been preached to the 4,000. It really wasn't complete until Jesus died and rose again. Uh, but now it has been open to all people in the world, and it's our responsibility to get that truth to them. So are we conscientious today of our responsibility as the church to share uh, the truth of the gospel with anybody who's willing to listen? Now, we can't make people listen. We can't force them to do that. But uh, if they're willing to listen, we should be willing to tell them. And then finally... How well do we apply what we have heard and what we have seen about the Lord Jesus? How well do we respond to what we see and what we hear in his word today? Hopefully you read your Bible every day so the Lord can speak to you. You're in church every Sunday. You hear the preaching of God's word. Uh, you're exposed to its teaching, but how well do you apply it? <clears throat> A pastor can only go so far because he doesn't know your heart of hearts. He doesn't know your life. He doesn't know everything that you're going through. That's your responsibility. And we seem to be living in a generation of Christianity where we're incapable of applying Scripture to the circumstances of our lives. And things happen in our life and we just kind of fall apart and we forget, oh, we have a Bible, we have Jesus, we have bread. Would we rather... Have God give us a sign to help us make a decision or just search the principles of his word where the answer is probably there. Jesus is the bread of life who feeds us from his word 
And in his word, we have everything that we need to live for him, to resolve our issues and problems, to keep our relationships what they ought to be, and to serve and proclaim him through life. We just have to think about the applications and not forget them like the disciples did. So let's be sure our perception of Christ and his word is on a level of growing trust and growing maturity and growing application. Heavenly Father, we pray you'll bless your word to our hearts today. We're thankful, Lord, that we have your word. We, we see it, we hear it as we read it, as we hear it preached, as we hear it taught. But Lord, oftentimes it just kind of goes into the information department of our brain and uh, falls shy of the application. So Lord, when we run into places where we need to make a decision, where uh, we are upset about something, where uh, something happens that causes distress, that you'll help us to go to your word and find out where it is that we can receive the help that we need. So Lord, help us to be unlike the disciples. Help us have deep spiritual perception and then apply those things to the needs of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, as we close today, let's turn to hymn number 229 and kind of make this uh, a prayer maybe as we close. And we'll sing the first and second stanzas, 229, Open My Eyes That I May See. <laughs>